Okay, thank you for inviting me, uh, Mariam and Marilyn. <laughs> After all these years, it's great to see you again. <laughs> and also to invite me for this topic and uh, for this uh, series. It's not normally my topic at all, but I, uh, I was glad I had, basically I was uh, forced to do this. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm writing a book, uh, a History of the Middle East, um, but through the perspective of uh, citizenship. Uh, it's not a, a common topic, uh, usually, when you look at the Middle East. Um, actually, uh, women's uh, studies uh, does a lot, much more than uh, the normal political science uh, mm -hmm. that I discovered. So that's really uh, interesting uh, to see that, that citizenship is much more regarded as uh, an important uh, topic uh, for citizenship um, in the Middle East. Uh, and it gives also a different perspective on the whole development of citizenship. So what I'll do is try to explain what citizenship is. Um, I, I was this, this morning standing in, in a row for my train and uh, someone working for Amnesty uh, International, I, and I asked him, what about citizenship? Do you do anything with it, uh, only human rights? And he said, citizenship, well, uh, everybody has a passport. <laughs> so, so many people think it's only uh, it's a, a, a passport, but it's, of course, much more. And that's what I'll try to explain, and also in different <coughs> books uh, on women. So why is citizenship uh, important? Um, so. If you look at it uh, as, as a much more broader thing just uh, than a passport or you see it, it's identity, it determines uh, who's uh, included, who's excluded. Uh, it's a bundle of rights, uh, civil, political, social rights, but it's also an attitude and habitus uh, and practices. That's also important to remember because some people focus only on, on rights and other people focus on practices. And the most famous one is, of course, uh, Sabah Mahmoud, uh, who focuses mostly on practices and does not look at rights. Uh, but as you look, every uh, researcher looks at a different aspect of uh, citizenship. The problem is, when does it start? When does it end? How important is it? Uh, I think it is important, because also if you look at the uh, contemporary movement, most of it is about citizenship. Even the, the, the contemporary uprisings in the Sudan, for instance, or in uh, Iraq in 2019, or in uh, Lebanon, you see it, it's not about nationalism especially, but it's about citizenship, common ideas of shared values, shared rights, uh, intersectarian uh, dialogues, or in Iraq, for instance, uh, the, the movement with Muqtadr al-Sadr and um, the communists recently goes back to a previous period where Iraqi first was uh, the, the most important slogan uh, in the 1950s and 40s, etc. So it is a, an important element, and especially if you look back in history, also in this case of uh, uh, women's movement. So it explains partly social movements and uprisings at the moment. I think uh, the Arab Spring is on citizenship. And it, it, I think it's also important, it makes it possible to make broader comparisons, not only between different countries in the Middle East and different movements, but also between the Middle East and Europe. Because in, in Holland, uh, citizenship is a very big thing. Uh, refugees have to have a whole course how to become Dutch citizens. Uh, but it's more interesting actually to compare, for instance, Syrians who come into Holland 
and to give a kind of parallel development of what citizenship means in Holland in history-wise and how it developed in Syria. And then you can have a more open dialogue to differences and commonalities. So this is what I would call important. The, the main slogan of the Arab Spring, of course, is bread, freedom, and justice, which is about citizenship. Uh, I wouldn't know what it would be otherwise, and all the different movements that you have had over the past eight years after the Arab Spring, uh, for instance, in, in uh, Morocco, uh, Sudan, in Iraq, as I mentioned, and Algeria. So what I will do in this uh, lecture is to give a definition of citizenship, uh, citizenship in gender studies to show what happens in, in different books that I have read, uh, the idea of social contract which I uh, work with, and then give you different examples uh, of different social contracts. For instance, the colonial pact, which I used, the Fendi social contract of the 1930s and 40s, the populist authoritarian pacts of the 1950s and 60s, and the alternative social contracts. So all these social contracts have a, an, a different idea of what uh, citizenship is, and it also allows for certain forms of citizenship. So you don't have full citizenship. Even in Europe, you don't have that. So it's also interesting to see that you have a graded citizenship. So it depends on the situation, whether it is. So what is citizenship? So it's on a collective level and on the individual level. So it's partly an individualization, a new sense of personhood, self-disciplination, a uh, new sense of collectivity, a new sense of responsibility, especially in the 19th century when the state starts to become, the modern state starts to become more important. And new ideas of, if you look at a modern uh, idea of, of citizenship, of what the common good is. Of course, there's a, an older idea of what the common good is, but you see that in, in the modern history, it all changes, uh, and, and all these different concepts which you have from Islamic history also starts to change, as uh, Marilyn also shows in her book on Zainab Fawaz. So also rights and, and entitlements um, and acts of citizenship. That's the last uh, thing which I think is an important. So it's not just ideas or rights, but it's also a way of uh, an attitude, a comportment in, uh, of people in, in the world and um, uh, how they act. So you have different types of uh, citizenship. So one is from above. The, the state is an important source of citizenship because it's not because of giving people rights, but of giving, controlling people, uh, having greater uh, control over resources, economic production, etc., and uh, reproduction. Uh, so it tries to control people. So you see that in the 19th century, that the state interferes much more directly into uh, the personal lives of people in contrast to 18th century or earlier. So there's a real bureaucratic, bureaucratic state which starts to operate on uh, people. But you, on the other hand, you have a citizenship from below. And I think that's important because in most post-structuralist analysis, it's mostly the state that operates. And uh, the whole idea of agency is mostly gone. So that's what I think also is an important citizenship studies that you really look also at agency and see how people also fight back against the state partly and try to form new communities uh, outside of the state or separate from the state or 
or in, against the state in making claims of, uh, of different rights and the acts of citizenship. So collective performances, uh, protests, uh, solidarity, etc. in the book by uh, Engen Issen, I don't know if you know it, Acts of Citizenship, which is an important book. So you don't have a full, but you have a graded citizenship. So it's gradually and partially and never anywhere, neither in, in Europe or in the Middle East, a full type of citizenship. So. So they wax and they wane, so uh, it's not a, a constant uh, element. The most famous uh, book by T.H. Marshall, which he wrote in the 1950s, which I'll show in a, in a moment, he has a kind of linear idea that citizenship is progressive, uh, that it accumulates and that we'll end as full citizens. Uh, that was his idea of how the welfare state would produce justice. Uh, and of course, gendered citizenship. So what we have here in this picture, uh, so you have the state, you have uh, patriarchy. Uh, I'm not going to go into that, but we'll come to that later. You have different ideologies on what citizenship is. And you have citizens and social movements which try to determine and fight for their rights or for their autonomy and uh, build up a, a culture of citizenship uh, among themselves. So what I think is important here to, to make a distinction between nationalism, Islamism, and citizenship, because mostly they're both, uh, they're conflated uh, usually. They don't, people don't make distinctions between these different uh, elements. I think it is important to look at these separately because I think uh, citizenship is actually more important than many of these other elements. At least it's important to look at citizenship because it not always falls under either Islamism or nationalism, the most important uh, ideologies. So let's just look at citizenship in gender studies. So the formation of proto-citizenship, and I hope I don't offend uh, Marilyn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Uh, to fit in her massive book, <laughs> yeah. a very rich book in just one slide. <laughs> As you've probably read it, it, it's a great book, and, uh, but very difficult to, to put in this scheme. So um, the focus is on the rise of feminism, women's subjecthood and participation, and uh, women's literature and gradual processes of creating citizenship through transformation of terminology, codes, conduct, and sense of the self. I will look at it more uh, deeply later on. Then you have the rights approach. And this is, uh, I think, also, these are important uh, publications uh, by Elizabeth Thompson on uh, Syria and Selma Botman on uh, Egypt and uh, Laura Beer, The Revolutionary Womanhood. Also, I don't know if anybody knows it. It's a great book. Mm -hmm. yeah, I really liked it. Um, it's. Uh, because it's one of the few books also on, uh, as far as I know, on the Nasserist period, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And state, state yeah. feminism. So here, the focus on these rights is, is that it's partly, it takes the, the ideas of T.H. Marshall, uh, which were developed in Europe, and the focus is on social, economic, and political rights. Uh, but these are already drawn out rights uh, with a clear uh, definitions. Uh, but it doesn't have very much on discursive fields of citizenship. It doesn't show how it, it really develops. Uh, 
and it certainly doesn't do anything on the kind of performative citizenship which you see in uh, Engen Essen's uh, book. Then you have political post-colonial theory, the most important or most famous, I think, is Lila Ahmed's Women and Children in Islam. But I feel here you don't have really have much agency, uh, uh, not to mention uh, citizenship doesn't occur at all in her books. And uh, thinkers like Qasem Amin are, have become tools of imperialism, etc. Then you have the, the really legalistic approach of women's rights. Uh, I wonder if you would agree with this, uh, but I'm happy to hear later on. And these are, of course, so at Yusuf, Yusuf's uh, book, Gender and Citizenship in the Middle East, Mona Russell's, there must be certainly more, and Cynthia Nelson's uh, book on Doria uh, Shafiq. Uh, so here you have gendered citizenship, and especially on law. Islamic law is important, especially uh, so at Yosef's books, it's been very influential, I think, uh, on especially on uh, courts, uh, laws, uh, polygamy, uh, uh, age of marriage, uh, marriages, etc., and the whole idea of uh, patriarchy and kinship uh, working on uh, these elements. Uh, and uh, the, the state is very prominently in existence in her works. She, mostly colonialism is neglected uh, and counter-movements are not. Finally, you have here women and nationalism, which is... Uh, Beth Barron's book, which is uh, also famous, both of these books. Uh, but again, if you look at her book, it only focuses, it mostly focuses on nationalism. So here you have a complete, uh, that citizenship and nationalism are completely uh, fall together. And there's nothing about citizenship at all. Uh, she does have parts, of course, on uh, women's rights, but not in relation to citizenship. I once asked her for, to contribute to uh, an edited volume I did on Broadridge, and uh, she had no idea what citizenship was, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but she, she does a lot of other things, of course, and all of these books are great. Uh, so education, uh, work, of course. Uh, and then finally, you have performative citizenship, which is Sabah Mahmoud's book, which probably everybody uh, knows, and is probably one of the most problematic books, uh, as far as I uh, concerned. Um, so the focus is on creation of Islamic feminist subject. It doesn't mention it, but it analyzes basically, I think, the alternative uh, Islamist citizenship project. So uh, I will go into that a little bit further on. So let's just look at social contracts. So now we've had citizenship, and the thing that goes with it is basically a social contract. But that's the broader framework where citizenship falls into. Um, so you have the classic idea of a social contract, which actually starts from Muhammad and is based on the Pact of Omar with, with the Christians, uh, and of course between Muslims based on the Quran and Hadith, etc. I won't go into all of this. Important is, I think, the colonial pact. Uh, but that's a period that's crucial. Mostly it's seen as uh, the nationalist era of the rise of nationalist movements in, in the Middle East, uh, the Waqf in Egypt, uh, different political parties in, in, in in Syria, the National Bloc, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the populist authoritarian pact. The fall of the authoritarian contract, uh, the Islamist alternative, and other alternative social contracts which are now trying to be created uh, through these different movements, and what they think should be the social contract at the moment. Uh, 
whether it's in Iraq or Sudan. Of course, people think mostly of authoritarian uh, groups, of dictators, etc. But there are at the same time different movements against this authoritarianism and trying to figure out uh, alternatives. Uh, the Lijan uh, Mukawama in Sudan, uh, the different movements in Iraq uh, which were being suppressed, etc. So let's just go back and see how citizenship and social contracts fit into each other and then look at the colonial pact. Uh, one of the things I've uh, tried to find out in this uh, book, and I stopped looking at calling it the nationalist, I think Cleveland calls it uh, the, the, the struggle for independence or something in his, in his famous book on uh, history of the Middle East. Uh, but I think it's much more uh, still, of course he, he mentions that colonialism still is important, but I think it's much more important than uh, he thinks, uh, or when he wrote the book in, in 75 or something. Uh, so just to briefly mention it, the colonial pact, what is it? Alliance of notables, uh, acceptance of foreign, influence on the economy, education, state policies, supportive creation of independent religious institutions, how colonialism forms these different uh, religious institutions, uh, the whole idea of divide and rule, and the continuation of the personal statute, whether it's Islamic or Christian, uh, and the support of conservative religious institutions and political institutions, and the continuity of patriarchy and paternalism. Thompson, in her book on Syria, calls it the paternalist pact. So basically, she grabs the two together in citizenship and the social pact in French mandate period in, in Syria, and calls it the, the paternalist pact, how the, the French mandate administration uh, supported the existing uh, patriarchal structures in, uh, in Syria. Uh, but this is a, something that you see elsewhere as well. And that's why it's interesting to look at women's history, because there you can see how colonialism operates uh, on these different issues. So looking at, uh, at Marilyn's uh, book, just to give a few ideas, uh, what I think is uh, fascinating is this whole idea of how the idea of rights is being transformed uh, as from a, a more based idea based on and practice based on uh, the Sharia to a more modern idea of rights. So that's why her book is, is uh, rich in especially evolving these kind of uh, ideas. Uh, so also the ideas of feminism, of course, the social participation, the rights of women, and the emergence of individuals, and all the different books, uh, the whole other culture which is being uh, created at the time, which also has its impact on what citizens are supposed to do, what kind of obligations they have, what kind of duties they have to the nation and to the community as whole. And here you have political ethics and gender uh, justice uh, and how they uh, are in intertwined uh, in the thing. So it also looks at, if you look at it, it fits into the whole Nakhda idea of the second half of the 19th century. And if you look at it through the lens of citizenship, basically if you look at, at uh, read books by Marwa al-Shakri, what is reading Darwin, it is basically about citizenship. If you look at the seven core ideas which arise from these books on the, the Nakhda, the whole idea of rationality, freedom, reform, virtue, control of passions, and etc., equality, political rights, 
this is of course a parody almost of what what is uh, being done. But if you look at these these different researches, it does come up with an idea of citizenship more actually than nationalism, because m much of what what is being analyzed doesn't really fall under nationalism, but is a much broader category because it's on rights, uh, other forms of identity, uh, not necessarily nationalist, uh, etc. So. If you look at other uh, elements as well in, in this, looking at Bed Barons, you see that also, which he analyzes the whole idea of mother as a, as, a, as a nation in Egypt. It doesn't really directly have barons on, on citizenship, but you can look at it from that uh, perspective. Especially this whole idea of women should be virtuous, modest, mm -hmm. exemplary, compassionate, and so on. So this would be the ideal of what a, a, a woman's citizen would be in this uh, period, uh, although it's not based on equal uh, rights. Uh, if you look at it, then you have all this whole row of different uh, rights which are being developed at the time. I won't go into all of this. Uh, so political participation is one of them, uh, but there are much more. So the right to education, uh, equal education, so the same curriculum as boys, uh, uh, higher e access to higher education, these were all elements where, where women were fighting for the right to work and to receive, not just to work, but also receive a salary, etc. But if you look also at acts of citizenship, you see the right to organize, to organize salons, publish in journals, organize charities, societies, etc., and all these uh, organized boycotts, etc. In the end, however, if you look at uh, how meager the results are in, in the 1930s and why there's a, a counter-movement at that point, then you see what I would call the colonial pact, which is uh, highly restrictive in the end of what is possible, uh, and uh, the patriarchal system which is being upheld and supported. Of course, this, in Egypt, this is a highly complicated thing because the British were not there directly but indirectly supporting the monarchy, which was a conservative element, uh, and the Waft eventually uh, submitting to this uh, system by uh, also signing these agreements with the British uh, on their military presence, etc., police presence, etc., and uh, cultural presence in a way. So what I think also is, is important in this whole development of citizenship is especially crucial in the 1930s and 50s. This, I think, is a, is a period where you can see that citizenship was really developed in the Middle East by all kinds of different uh, uh, movements, and that you have a full-fledged idea of what citizenship could have been if the military had not stepped in in the end and uh, turned it into an authoritarian idea of what citizenship is, and state uh, citizenship, and state feminism. In, in the end. Uh, but it's interesting to look also at the history of this, uh, this whole idea of citizenship and this introduction to the Middle East, because there is a link between actually Britain and also France directly uh, ideologically uh, in the person of Thomas Marshall. Here you have him and his book, Citizenship and Social Class. So what was important in the 1930s is this whole idea of poverty, sickness, that was the reform. Social reform was the main element at the time. So it was not identity, it was not even Islam, which people think, although the Muslim Brotherhood was important, but not in other countries. But it was mostly social reform. 
And this is where feminism and women's movement would fit into in this idea of, uh, of restructuring uh, Middle Eastern societies and looking at social rights and this high uh, idea of shared, common, and equal citizenship also between whether you're Shia or Sunni or uh, Christian or Muslim or whatever, you have a, a shared idea of what citizenship in this uh, period is. And it's against the notables and the aristocracy and the monarchies, of course, uh, in the time. So this is, a, I think, a, a period of optimism. And also, if you look at other movements which come later on, even the, the Arab Spring, you see that they often look back at this uh, earlier period as a period of, of hope and try to take elements from this earlier period. So this is just one figure, of course. It was a general idea. It was not based on Marshall's idea, but he was influential because he, in, in Europe, and especially in Britain, of course, he was influential in establishing the welfare state in, of labor in the 1940s and uh, 50s. So if you look at, at the genealogy in the Middle East, uh, you have uh, Muhammad Hadid uh, and his daughter who built or designed the, the library here. He was important. They all studied in, in London and came out with, their, with his ideas. Went, he went to Iraq, and, uh, but also the Egyptian uh, Rashid al-Barawi, but also in France you have the same elements uh, through Bourguiba at that uh, period. But you have also an, an Islamic uh, version and all these ideas of socialism, social justice in Islam and uh, Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr to create a new idea of uh, Islamic uh, citizenship. And actually it was not opposed to a secular, or it was opposed to secular per se, but it wasn't that different from uh, what was happening in secular uh, movements at the time and their ideas. So there was an exchange also in, these, uh, in this period of what citizenship is. And you see that also in figure like Doria uh, Shafiq, but there must be more and even more representative of this whole trend, and especially on the left. So here you see, I, I like her because she's not part of the, the older aristocratic uh, class, but she was linked to these. Uh, but she did try to develop her own uh, course. Uh, so here you have a, a whole range of developments she had uh, from the 1930s. And her main idea, of course, is on feminism. A country cannot be free if its women are not. The only solution was to build up a feminist movement, to demand full political rights for women. And that's where she came into conflict with uh, Nasser in the end, went on hunger strike, etc. But you see a kind of ambiguity. She's a kind of a transitional figure, as far as I uh, think, and especially if you look at the role of citizenship, especially this idea to raise the social and cultural level of Egyptian women and prepare them for the worthy cause, worthy use of their rights. This worthiness is, of course, is a, an older element and not that you immediately have equal rights. You have to earn these rights in a way, become educated and become a citizen before you can really have these rights, as it were. So that's uh, a different, you have a more egalitarian idea in, with the leftist. So if you look here, then you see what, what happened in the end. If you look at the Middle Eastern history, of course, this optimistic period did not work out because eventually the state took over, the military took over in all these rev revolutions and they became authoritarian. So what happened to all these different rights in the new welfare state? And that, this is the classic exchange of rights. So you have the political rights that they 
the, these, all these movements in the 1930s and 40s demanded uh, were exchanged for social and economic rights, uh, uh, which people got new housing, uh, jobs, etc., etc., and the whole idea of social engineering. So it was from above. So you see it earlier, as we saw that the, the state takes over and creates citizens, and here you see that the state takes over but uses social reform and social rights to give uh, people their their demands, although they don't get it as rights, as, as it were. Uh, so that's the different thing. So, and at the same time, you see that, that women and women's movements are also s subjected to this uh, state, and they are uh, subordinated to authoritarianism. So women do get all these different uh, sort of rights and opportunities for work in the public sector, regulation of working hours for women, employees, the right to vote, uh, the right to run for public office. But what is the, the purpose of the right to vote uh, if the state determines exactly what's being done? And you don't really have an opportunity to interfere uh, with the, the whole process. So the, all these positive effects, in the end, are limited. So protective legislation for women, expansion of free education, and expansion for welfare services, as Beer writes in her book. But the negative effects are, of course, state domination, end of independent feminism, and in uh, the end of different publications. So there's only one state feminist publication which remains. What you see before, there was a huge amount of different publications uh, from all kinds of different uh, feminist uh, writers who had established all kinds of different journals, uh, from left-wing to moderate to Islamist, uh, etc. So in the end, only one of these uh, remained. So let's look at the last example. This is what we would, what I would call uh, the Islamist performative feminist uh, citizenship uh, in an attempt to uh, create an alternative Islamist uh, social contract. Most of you probably know Saba Mahmoud's uh, book. So what does she do? She, she writes about ethics of self-mastery. Uh, just to, to give some quotes uh, from her book, and see if this is what, I think it, it's one important element that you, of, of citizenship, especially this, this acts of citizenship. Uh, she doesn't mention it in her book. She, uh, she mentions uh, uh, citizenship four times in her book. It's interesting to see that she does mention it in relation to the Arab Spring. So she does uh, recognize that the uprisings are about uh, rights, uh, uh, political rights uh, and social rights. Uh, but I wonder how, how she would link that to her own uh, book, but she does completely something different in her book. So let's look at her. It's, it's mostly a kind of self-discipline that Islamist movements, uh, women, uh, impose upon themselves and not being subjected to, although they accept the patriarchy, she does not uh, see it as something negative, but something creative because it's done by themselves. Uh, so organizing daily conduct, practicalities of daily living, educating ordinary Muslims in virtue, uh, their ethical capacities. So they create a whole new ethical dimension through all these practices of uh, praying, meeting, studying Quran, etc. The emphasis on agency, everyday resistance, etc. And of course, the, the last one, embodied action. So there's a whole row of these kind of uh, analysis, practices of virtue, techniques of the self. 
So it's self-mastery over one's passions and leading an ethical life. So, and the end, of course, is creation of a virtuous uh, society. So what is it? The politics of piety. It's, in a sense, uh, apolitical and an ethical practice. It's no resistance against the state. It's not emancipatory in the classical sense uh, of individual liberation. And it accepts patriarchy as a hierarchy. But it does not participate in electoral politics, claiming rights, using judicial system to improve the situation of women. So here you have what she mentions about citizenship. Although I think it is about citizenship. She only mentions it four times. So what she says about the Arab uprising and feminism, or in general, full civil and political rights under what people demand, full civil and political rights under a democratic system, committed some degree of uh, economic justice. So this is the classical analysis she has of citizens. But she doesn't lead to this kind of conclusion from her uh, book. This is in her preface. Uh, and she mentions other times modern Muslim citizens. So she does connect citizenship and Islam in some ways. Okay, so what she does is cr to create an alternative concept of citizenship as a, a liberal, in opposition to a liberal secularism. And it's an alternative idea of citizenship uh, formation based on piety. But if you look at, uh, at the Nakhda and also all these other feminist or women's movements, you see m much of actually of the same kind of elements uh, coming back. It's uh, education, virtue, ethics, dialogue, uh, etc., which you see already from the 19th century, which also uh, Marilyn uh, analyzes and other people analyzes when you look at the whole debate on marriages uh, and how marriage is supposed to have a modern form, etc., then you see also many of these elements coming back. So to conclude, eventually looking back at all these different movements, what can we see if you look at all these different books on women's movements, women's rights, etc., and if you look in, in connection with uh, citizenship, I think it's, a, it's an interesting way to, to look at the Middle East history, and especially in this case on women, because then you see that citizenship is a kind of element which does go through this, the whole history and, and these different movements as a kind of a red line which connects these different movements. So even uh, Sabah Mahmoud's attempt to com do something completely different, if you look at it in perspective from citizenship, it's not really that, di it, it is different, but it is uh, not completely con contradictory with other elements. It's just an, another way of trying to create a new kind of community with a new kind of citizenship. But this is an element that you see throughout all of these different uh, books. So it, it highlights citizenship highlights the dimensions of rights, inclusion, exclusion, different forms of socialization and cultural production. And it's more, I think it's more fundamental than nationalism or Islamism. Because these are mostly ideologies, but they contain uh, citizenship within uh, them. Um, so it's important to eventually to use the concept to be able to understand them. And I think that women's movements highlight some of these, these elements, especially uh, more actually than other movements because they're so much focused on rights and practices, etc. So you get a completely different idea of what citizenship is and uh, especially the, the, the problematic uh, dimensions of citizenship 
in uh, the Middle East and the, the, the all the kinds of different uh, contentious elements within it. So what you see actually, if you look at it from this perspective, then a lot of this history is basically on the struggle of defining what citizenship is. So Islamist movement would have a different way of defining what citizenship is, although they might not recognize it as something that is called citizenship. Um, and even if you look at, for instance, uh, in Egypt at the moment, uh, at Sisi, he does have a concept of citizenship, so you see it coming back in all these different elements. Uh, of course, it's a completely authoritarian idea of what citizenship is about. Uh, it was based on stability, not political rights, of course, uh, and the idea that you, would, without stability, you will not have economic uh, progress, uh, etc. And it's, of course, based completely on the state, uh, the state as the kind of guarantee to identity, uh, etc. So, I'll leave that. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was very inclusive and comprehensive, so I'm, I'm sure there is a ton to discuss. Thank you very much, and thank you, Roel, for that very rich paper. And yeah, just to say, it's it's a great pleasure to have Roel here. We we first met when we were both students in Cairo. So that is a long time ago. <laughs> so really, really good to have you here. I'm just going to, I'll try to be really brief. And I, you know, sort of starting off with what you say at the end, women's movements highlight essential aspects of citizenship. Um, and that certainly, I think, you know, that you've demonstrated that and that's, um, that's very important. And you've also shown how it was differently positioned at different historical conjunctures as there are shifting relationships between citizens and political authorities um, and all these things. So, you know, it's, I, I agree with you that citizenship is a really good way to sort of think about all these things and also that it's such a good comparative mode to think about Middle Eastern societies, other societies, and to get away from the essentialism that so often, you know, um, is a problem and still a problem in the study of the region. But what I want to do is maybe pull out what you also called some of the more problematic aspects of citizenship. And you certainly mentioned these, but I want to maybe dwell on them a little bit more. So you say women's movements highlight essential aspects of citizenship. And to that, I would also add the concept and practices of citizenship highlight essential and cross-societal aspects of patriarchal social and familiar organizations. And you, you certainly certainly recognize that. And I think that this is one way in which we also really need to think about citizenship. What does it tell us about enduring issues and problems, and the, especially the, the issue of gendered citizenship as something where women and men are assigned differential roles and differential, there are different expectations in terms of what they do, which is intention with the constitutions of certain states that say, you know, all citizens are equal before the law, but in fact, they, they really aren't. And certainly restrictions on women's full citizenship have often been ignored or resisted in the name of cultural specificity as well, that this is something that, you know, this, our culture is special in this way and we can't um, make changes. So I think that all of these things come into the question, the question of of citizenship. So I went back to what I think is a groundbreaking book, Ruth Lister's book, Citizenship Feminist Perspectives, which first came out in the late 1990s, and then there was a revised edition. 
And she begins with an observation, and I quote, citizenship is an ostensibly gender neutral concept that in fact is deeply gendered, a universalist idea that masks gendered and often raised particularity. And of course, this is something that feminists have recognized since, you know, we go back to Olympe de Gouges, French Revolution, Mary Wollstonecraft, of course. And in her conclusion, Lister says, citizenship provides an invaluable strategic theoretical concept for the analysis of women's subordination and a potentially powerful political weapon in the struggle against it. And so I think maybe that's, even though I don't focus specifically on the term citizenship in my book, that's something I'm really trying to struggle with and, and work through. And I guess I just want to mention several areas where I see this and, and ask you to maybe comment a little bit on them. And the first is the whole question of, you know, what do you do in terms of citizenship when power is hierarchical rather than generative? In other words, when you've got a hierarchical power structure in society, and this partly can result in group-based or kinship-based citizenship where individuals, and particularly women in this case, are disadvantaged, how do you maybe from the perspective of citizenship studies, how can we think about hierarchical power relationships and maybe try to work out ways that, that those can be resisted or that have been resisted in the past, if we're thinking historically. So in these various social contracts that you outlined, where does the, the power come in and how does that affect the way citizenship works? And, you know, for instance, and I think one could look at this in each period, the continuing centrality of patriarchal authority in the family. So it's not just the state, but it's the family. And that's about law, personal status law, but it's also about access to resources and, and how then women and, um, and subordinated men can actually work their citizenship in ways that, that help them. And certainly one way that we see that centrality of patriarchal authority in many, many societies, Muslim-majority societies, is like the concept of wilaya, you know, the concept of male guardianship of, of females. So they're right there is a, a way in which citizenship is skewed towards men. And, you know, I think my, my heroine, Zainab Fawez, um, I think she recognized very much that oppression begins in the family. And... Lister has a lot to say about this, not with regards to the Middle East, but the whole question of public and private and how defining a realm called the private realm allows this uh, patriarchal power to continue by having a space that is supposedly away from politics and away from public scrutiny and where that can be a space of oppression as well as of affirmation. And you mentioned the, the question of terminology um, and this, to me, also intersects with the question of power, because who has the right to define the terminology and who has the right to make sure that certain meanings work? So, for instance, around the question of rights, and I, yeah, I've been fascinated by how the term haq and haquq, how this sort of shifts in the late 19th century from being something that means, with regards to women, something that means, you know, haq al-zawja, the, what is due to a woman in marriage. So what, by getting married, what can she expect as her, as her rights? Um, but then it becomes more general, and it becomes sort of 
haq al-mar'a, the right of the woman, and then it, it becomes hukuk al-mar'a, women's rights. But throughout this, and then you also have this fascinating term, al-haq al-maslub, um, rights that have been stripped away, showing up in the press in the 19th century. But the thing is, there's still an ambiguity around that because people mean different things by rights. So you have this term, rights, but different people mean it in different ways. Um, so you have debates over freedom, you know, hurriya. So what kind of right does a woman have to hurriya and what does that mean? So I think that question of who has the power and the ability to define these terms is a really important one for citizenship studies. And I'd be interested in hearing you say a bit more about this. And along with that, this question of, you pointed to Doria Shafiq, and she talks about worthiness, rights and worthiness. And this seems to me another iteration of the whole question of rights and duties, which is, I think, pretty ubiquitous in citizenship. I mean, you get that. Lister brings up, for instance, the, the, um, the example of new labor and the way they talked about, you know, the, you have to um, fulfill your responsibilities before you can really deserve rights. So I think this is another way in which, you know, you have obligations or duties and you have rights and who is going to define what those are and how they are, are gendered. And one thing that I notice when I'm reading newspapers Arabic newspapers from the 1890s and a bit later, constantly women are, you know, this is always paired. It's like al-haq wal-wajib, right and duty. And it's somehow paired a lot more for women than it is for men in public discourse. And I think that's an interesting thing that, that needs to be taken on board. And it seems, if anything, it's the wajib that is emphasized more than the rights. And again, these terms are malleable in the sense that people are assigning different definitions, you know, to, so duties are mostly assumed to be women in the home, but some feminists, I think, are trying to expand that. But again, who's, to, who's, who's the one who, who actually has the ability to define that? And Lister also notes that, you know, duties imply also that one has the ability to fulfill them. So you have to have the resources that allow you to fulfill those rights. But then what happens if the duty kind of outweighs the rights? And again, I think about the discourse on girls' education mm -hmm. at the turn of the century where it was all about family duty. Um, you know, the, the, the maternalist discourse that the mother has to be educated in order to, to be a good citizen. And I actually think the maternalism, I think it is a direct, I think there is a direct relationship. It's one way that women are claiming citizenship is through the maternal role. But then what happens if education for girls is defined instrumentally as this is so that girls can become good mothers? What about, what happens to girls' right to self-realization and to go further in studies and so forth? So again, I think all of this actually comes into that nexus of kind of authority and the power to, to define, you know, the Effendia in the 1930s. I found that really interesting that you saw that as a period of maybe more freedom. And I wonder if you could say a bit more in terms of gender, because to me, the Effendia, it's a very masculine concept. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really, and when they talk about equal rights, 
do they really mean equal rights for everybody? Where do they place women in this? And just finally, one thing, when you talk about the Nahda with regards to Saba Mahmoud's emphasis on morality and ethics, and, and I agree, the terms are really, they really echo, but I think the difference is, I see the difference as being that in the Nahda, there is a recognition that these had to become public issues, and they, they, they had to be they had to be determined and fought over in the public sphere, which I don't really see so much mm. in Mahmoud's paper. So, uh -huh. sorry, I hope that makes some, <laughs> makes some sense. Um, just a few no, kind yeah, of thoughts. Yeah. Um, no, thank you very much. Uh, uh, if I can ask, thank you so much, Gerlin. Yeah. If I can, I know it's quite impossible, but if you can answer briefly so that Yeah, 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 of course. Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I'm glad you, you brought up all these uh, issues. <laughs> It, and it's good, of course, you, you look at it from a, a, a different perspective. Because I'm just focusing on citizenship, and I try to pull in women's uh, issues into it. Uh, but you're, you're completely right. Um, and especially on the, on the issue of power, of course. And mm -hmm. that, that it's uh, the <coughs> determining element in, in, in all of these, uh, that runs through the whole history every time again and again, that these relations are... Uh, asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I agree completely with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and especially, also, I find fascinating in this, this terminology. That that's, mm -hmm. that's something to, to really look into how, how that changes constantly. Mm -hmm. And even now, uh, mm -hmm. how it's being used in, in all these different... Uh, but especially in, in the Nakhda period, it's been Mm -hmm. very extensively looked at, the whole idea of Shab and all these mm -hmm. different uh, elements. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you so much.